Well, it's a privilege uh, once a year to give Pastor Meyer a break for a few Sundays, allow him to get ready for the Lenten season, and give me an opportunity to, to share with you on a theme of my choice. And this year, I want to revisit what you might say is the who at the center of our faith. You might recall in the fall that uh, we did an eight-week series on the attributes of God using James Bryan Smith's book, The Good and Beautiful God, uh, looking at these different qualities of, of who God is. And one of the quotes that uh, Pastor Meyer used as a part of that series uh, was from A.W. Tozer. He writes, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And here's my translation of that. <laughs> when we look at our demeanor, our mindset and values and approach to life, we are seeing in ourselves the mirror image of the God that we serve. We reflect the God we serve in our life. Wow, that's a bit frightening, isn't it? <laughs> well, conversely, if we polish that mirror and get a more accurate gaze at the God we serve, we can be lifted up. Pastor Meyer's message last Sunday on looking at the vision of perfection, he quoted from Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, the following. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And this is no more true than it is in placing our thoughts on the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to develop over the next number of weeks series of sermons around the theme of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And if you look at the screen, you can see the overview of where we're going to be going with this series. So I, I have selected four classic New Testament texts that take us to Jesus in terms of the height of the one who rules over the universe down to the depths of the one who has come down to us to show his love for us. Next Sunday, we'll take that wonderful hymn of the early church recorded in Philippians chapter 2 that begins with, though he was in the form of God, he counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so I call this sermon, uh, Descent into Greatness. And then two weeks from today, we'll take that classic text out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where Paul says that Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And because of that, I'm going to call this sermon, When You've Said Jesus, You've Said It All. And then the last one in this series, we'll take a look at a phrase out of John's prologue, the Gospel of John, when he talks about Jesus as God's glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Imagine Jesus is the revelation of God's glory to us. Glory came among us and we survived. How can that be? Well, that's why I call this message lightning in a bottle. But this morning, I want us to turn our attention to the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but uh, we believe it certainly was an association of, with one of the apostles. And the book of Hebrews begins by saying that when God said all that there was to say, he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we want to look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. But as we come to that text, we note that the writer of Hebrews has already told us that God spoke from the prophets of old in many and various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. In other words, when God said everything that there was to say, 
Jesus Christ came to us. And that he is the sustainer of the universe, the one to whom all things point. And then he transitions and uh, speaks about the humanity of Jesus. So let's read this text as is our habit uh, responsively. We'll start at verse 14 of the second chapter, and then we'll move over to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, or you could say tested, he is able to help those who have been tested. Then we turn to the fourth chapter, starting at verse 14. Let me pick it up there, and then you read the 15th verse. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Probably noted that the entire flow of that text moved towards that invitation that I just read in verse 16, an invitation to come and find mercy and grace in time of need. We are told in this text that we have a God who sympathizes with us. Now, we're going to look at that word sympathy in a little more detail in a moment. But if you have a problem, if you're being weighed down, to whom do you turn? If you're going through a deep and shameful struggle, perhaps an addiction or the pain of a broken relationship, to whom do you open your heart? Probably someone who shows understanding, someone who shares common ground with you. Many of you know that uh, about two and a half years ago, I had surgery for a very potent form of prostate cancer. And uh, because of that, uh, people come to me who have similar issues. (laughs) That was followed up by a time of radiation, a time of some medication. And uh, people sought me out who are saying, Greg, you've walked this road before. You know the emotional terrain. You've experienced this. Can I talk with you? Can we converse about this? And so, because I have been there, people find me welcoming. I can be of help in terms of the options that people have and maybe some resources uh, that they didn't know it. I can truly say to them, I know how you feel. (laughs) I've walked that road. And perhaps they see in someone who has not only survived but uh, is now thriving, thank God, even though I know there's no guarantees. (laughs) But many of you have, I know, also gone and lived beyond cancer as well. I think what this text tells us this morning is that Jesus took the full plunge into our world. 
and that he too can say, I know how you feel. And this is the basis for his invitation to us to come and find mercy and grace in our time of need. So I want to take a look at this text this morning under, under three different headings. The first one is that Jesus fully entered into our humanity. Story told of a father who took his six-year-old son out on the basketball court to teach him how to shoot some hoops. And the little boy who took the ball and pushed it upward couldn't quite get it up to the goal. His father kept on instructing him, showing him the proper technique. Uh, Just do it like this, son. It's really easy. Son just kept shooting that ball up, and it would just land short of the basket. Father kept encouraging him to try a little bit harder. But after several minutes of this futility, the son finally said to his father, Yeah, it's easy for you up there. You don't know how hard it is down here. Well, I think to overcome this same complaint that we could have about God, Jesus completely closed the gap so that he became one with us. He's sympathetic, approachable, and understanding because the gap has been closed, the distance has been closed between our experience and his experience. And this is the way the writer of Hebrews puts it in the second verse, uh, second chapter, the 14th verse. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Now he calls us children here. Now children are offspring of the Father, so that's referring to all of humanity in this text. But there's a key word, and the NIV translation doesn't quite capture the repetitiveness of this key word. Since the children have flesh and blood, the writer says, that word should actually be share in flesh and blood. They, he too shared in their humanity. Now, most of us probably are not Greek scholars, but there is a Greek word used here that many of us have probably heard. It's the word koinonia. The word koinonia means that which we share in common. That's which unites us. We have a Sunday night high school group called what? Koinonia. And so we're familiar with this. It's oftentimes translated fellowship, or as somebody has said, fellows in the same ship. We are a part of life uh, together, that connection has been made. So what unites us is this common humanity. And Jesus shares in this common humanity is a flesh and blood being and has become one with us. Now one of my favorite authors, probably one of yours as well, is Max Lucado. And in a book on the humanity of Jesus, he was trying to imagine what this humanity looked like. Well, at a book signing for this book, a woman approached him in a rather agitated state, slammed his book down on the table, and said for everybody to hear, my God didn't have pimples. And the paragraph that she was quoting was the following. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have had been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him, or vice versa. It could be that his knees were a little bony. One thing is for sure, he was completely divine and completely human. Now, I'm sure what Max Lucado was trying to do here is to overcome our idealization of Jesus. Jesus kind of came down to earth, but he was kind of stayed one foot off the ground, floated through life as if nothing quite touched him. And Lucado's saying, no, he became one with us in our humanity. The writer of Hebrews repeats this in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every way. Made like means made equal to his brethren in every way. Really? In every respect, he's like us? 
My wife and I were a part of a small group studying this passage of Scripture uh, some time ago. And uh, one of the women in the group really kind of tripped over that phrase, in every respect he's like us. And then she brought the house down in the group with this comment. Oh, yeah? I bet he never had PMS. (laughs) Well, to share our common humanity doesn't mean that... uh, He shared every experience that we have. Just as for us to share common humanity with each other doesn't mean I have had every experience you've had or every experience that I have had. But we are flesh and blood creatures uh, sharing in the common challenges of life. And I think what Hebrews is telling us here is that Jesus shared humanity with us for a greater purpose, for two things. One is to defeat the fear of death. And secondly, to enter into our sufferings and redeem them. So let's take a look at that, that first point. Jesus fully entered into our humanity to remove the fear of death. So we read in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Why? So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to their fear of death. I think the pall that hangs over all of our lives is the anxiety around the fear of death. Now, it's been said that the number one fear of Americans is what? Public speaking. And that may be a death experience of sorts. But I do believe that this is accurate, that the number one fear that we all face is the fear of death. Now, it's not that we're conscious of it all the time. We're not walking throughout our days being burdened by the fear of death. But anything that is a traumatic thing to us, what do we do? We press it out of our consciousness. We repress it. We push it below so that we don't have to face it. I don't think we've probably ever heard Jay Leno or Oprah share with their guests, well, we're talking today with our guests about how they feel about death. No, we don't, we don't talk about it, do we? We press it out of our, of our consciousness. So we enter this world denying the reality of death. I think it was Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show who described a Southern California cemetery, forest lawn, as the Disneyland of death. <laughs> we try to mask it so it doesn't look like what It is. Eugene Peterson tells the story of a wealthy Texan who wanted to be buried in style. According to his will, he wanted to be propped up behind the wheel of a solid gold Cadillac. The car was poised before a large grave excavated in the prairie. On signal, the brakes were released and the lavish automobile with the owner and deceased behind the wheel rolled gently in the incline into the grave. And as it drifted to a stop, one of the spectators said in awe, man, that's living. (laughs) Probably never seeing the irony of those statements. Ernst Becker in his book, The Denial of Death, wrote, modern man is drinking or drugging himself out of awareness of death, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. What is it that we are afraid of? What lies behind the fear of death? Certainly there are the common human fears of separation from our loved ones and will they be taken care of? 
There's that uh, moment of utter aloneness that we know will come, that what is going to come after that moment, that unknown that is there. But I think ultimately the fear of death is the fear of judgment. Later in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. At the moment of death, we all intuitively know that we will stand before the bar of God whose powerful luminosity will expose every shameful thought and deed done under the stealth of darkness. The piercing light of his radiant holiness will reveal all that is. And I think there is no greater fear than the fear of exposure. And we will be found out unless, unless, We have allowed Jesus to remove the fear of death for us now. And this is the Hebrew writer's point. Verse 17, Jesus became like us in every respect that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. What's atonement? It's a payment. He paid on our behalf. He stood in our stead. Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become right with God. And to the extent we put our weight and trust upon him and receive that forgiveness, then on the invoice of our life we have paid in full. And the fear of death is removed. The Hebrew writer goes on to say in verse 14, that he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. The word destroy here is more likely to be translated made ineffective, made unproductive, the power of death, the devil. In other words, the devil has nothing to throw up against us. He has nothing to accuse us of if we have received that forgiveness that Christ offers, that received that payment of debt that has been paid on our behalf. Again, to borrow from Max Lucado this morning, he tells a wonderful story that helps illustrate uh, how Christ overcame the fear of death. There was a missionary who was working in the jungles of Brazil in a rather remote area among a tribal group that was there, and disease broke out among this tribal group. And to get the tribe to an infirmary uh, meant a difficult task because people were dying quite rapidly. And he needed to get them there to be inoculated against uh, what was spreading through Uh, that village tribe. But to get to this infirmary, he had to go across a river. He had to take the people across a river, and they believed that evil spirits inhabited that river, and to enter that river was certain death. So the task of this missionary was to convince them that they could actually go across that river in order to get the inoculation that they needed. The first thing he said to them was, how do you think I got here? I came across that river to get to you, so, so it's safe. No movement at all. Then he took the tribal group up to the edge of the water and put his hand in the water to show them that nothing was going to happen to them. Still no movement. Then finally he stepped out to the water up to his knees, splashed it on his face. They didn't budge. And then finally he dove into the water himself, submerged himself under it, came out on the other side with his fist in the air in victory showing that nothing could harm him. And the people followed him across the waters. And I think it's a beautiful picture of 
what Christ has done for us. He came and dove into our life and defeated death so that we could find our way uh, to the other side. But even with that knowledge, we still might have some fear of what awaits us or the desire simply not to face that reality in our life. And I say this very personally because it's true of me. Perhaps it's my age. I'm at the stage of life where approximately three-quarters of my life expectancy has passed. At best, I have a quarter ahead. And the thought of facing that finality, something I push out of my own consciousness, I must admit. Until recently. I was at a staff retreat a couple weeks ago aware that uh, I hadn't really dealt with this as much as I needed to. And I was introduced as a part of our reflection to some words of Jesus on the cross. It was his last words. It says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and then said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the scripture says he breathed his last, of course, until the resurrection. And I thought, what wonderful words. Jesus says to his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, you are trustworthy. I can let my life go to you. And I thought to myself, the reason that Jesus was able to say that at the last moment was probably because he said it every day of his life. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It wasn't something that just came on him there at the last moment. And when that time came, he was able to release himself to his father's care. And since that retreat, I have been writing in my journal, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because I want that to be true today, so when that time comes, it's simply a release to my Father. Fear of death will move to an anticipation of being with the God who gave his life for me. Fear of death has been made ineffective And then the final point that I want to make this morning is that Jesus fully entered into our humanity to identify with our sufferings. So we read in verse 18 of chapter 2, because he himself suffered when he was tempted or tested, he is able to help those who are being tested. And then chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Just as we are, yet was without sin. That word sympathy is a very interesting word in the Greek language. It's literally the word soon pathos, to suffer with, to have a fellow feeling with. Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he shares our, our fellow thing. He can say to us, I know how you feel, I've been there, I've shared the same experience. Do you know how different our view of God is than everybody else's view? Do you realize we are the only people who believe that God came and entered into the sufferings of humanity? The Greeks of Paul and Jesus' day believed that God was apathos, apathetic, because the highest quality was serenity. And God could not be disturbed by the feelings and sufferings of humanity because that would interrupt his serenity. God was above and beyond, unconcerned about humanity. Even the God of Judaism 
of Jesus' day. Viewed God as different and holy and separate. Yes, God was concerned about human affairs. He certainly entered in and released the people of, of Israel from captivity in Egypt. But not that God shared in human suffering. Empathy, yes. But his thoughts were not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. But it was Jesus who showed us the heart of God, who took the plunge into our world. Interesting, the Chinese symbol for love is a combination of two images. One, it's the brushstroke of love on top of the word for pain. Love is pain love. Os Guinness has captured Jesus' identification with us like this. As God became man in Jesus Christ, he was no Pentagon chief making quick-flying inspections of the front lines, but one who shared the foxholes, who knew the risks and felt the enemy fire. No other God has wounds. I was arrested by a comment from Thomas Cahill's book, The Desire of the Everlasting Hills. And I should acknowledge at the outset that Thomas Cahill is no orthodox Christian. The thought of Jesus' sacrificial death being an atonement for us, he thought was a vestige of paganism of the past. But when it came to the suffering of Christ, he saw something new here, and this was his comment. But Jesus' suffering body is surely the ultimate gift, for it is his final act of sympathy with us. For all ages, human suffering has been the stumbling block that no life can avoid and that no philosophy has been able to comprehend. But in the New Testament, he gives us a new story that contains the first glimmer of encouragement, the only hint of an explanation that heaven has ever deigned to offer. I suffer with you. Jesus' suffering, I think, is the answer to that little boy's retort. You don't understand what it's like down here. And though Jesus' suffering doesn't explain all of our suffering, it redeems us, redeems it for a better day. But I think this quote that you're going to see on the screen from John Stott expresses for me exactly how I feel about our God. It's a long quote, so follow with me if you would. He writes, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. Now, I might just interrupt here. That's exactly the way I feel about it. If God was not willing to share the pain of humanity, I think God should be despised rather than loved. (laughs) But Stott goes on. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many a Buddhist temple in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails to his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wretched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. 
That is the God for me. He laid aside immunity to pain. He entered the world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our suffering becomes more manageable in the light of his. We have a God who can and does sympathize fully with us. He's a God with skin on. He took on death. He entered into our sufferings to invite us to come to him. Remind you of the invitation that closes this passage. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Maybe you come here this morning with an unclear economic future. And Jesus can say to you, I know how that feels. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, he says. Maybe you feel that you failed as a parent. And Jesus can say, I know how you feel. I gave my love to my children, and they turned from me. If you've suffered abandonment or abuse or were betrayed by those who promised to love you, our God can say, you know, I know how you feel. I was deserted by my followers at the end of my days, and even on a cross I had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is no human loss, fear, or challenge that we cannot bring to our God. Our God is the approachable God. He invites us into the throne of grace, ready to dispense mercy in time of need. Let's pray together. Lord God, we gather as a church family today. We're at all different places. Some are here because there is an immediate need. Uh, there is a weightiness that has been brought into this room. And uh, the invitation for you to, for, to come to you is real. The need for grace and mercy in a time of need and you tell us to come with confidence, come with boldness into your presence. And may we do so. And may we are not feeling the intensity of a need at this moment, but we know the nature of this life is that uh, we may be feeling good now, but something may be thrown at us that was unexpected. And again, we need to know and remember this invitation to come to you because you have come to us and taken on life from our perspective. And we give you thanks for the grace that has been bestowed. Through Christ we pray. Amen.